We want to welcome you here today. As you can see, it is packed, and that's okay. Uh, We don't get to do this very often, but today is a special day, not just in that it's the week that's leading into Thanksgiving, and it's kind of the culmination of a week where we've tried to, or a month where we've tried to really focus on this idea of giving thanks and thankfulness. Uh, We've been studying through the Psalms, and how we want to wrap that up today is the ultimate of all Psalms, remembering a Psalm is a thankful song. This is the practice or the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and I'm so glad you could be a part of that. And then we're going to follow that up with what we call our traditional Thanksgiving meal. And so what a great way to celebrate today. Uh, Baptists love to do the Lord's Supper, and we love to eat just about equally. And so we're going to get to do both at the same time. Those of you who have been here uh, in the seven and a half, almost eight years that I've been here, y'all understand that there's two ordinances that the Lord has left with us. And remember, an ordinance is something that means it's ordained. So Jesus specifically ordained a couple of things for his church to carry out. Now, we could get into great commission and all these other commands that Jesus gave, but there were a couple of practices in particular that he ordained. One is baptism, and we've been blessed in our church to have multiple baptisms as we have baptized people that have become Christ followers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the other ordinance is the one that you're going to be partaking of today. And this is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Now, that's how we refer to it in Protestant Christian churches. However, this has been practiced many years, and it's had many different names. And I'll share some of these. My favorite is Eucharist, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. The memorial feast, because one of the things that Jesus tells us in carrying out the Lord's Supper is remember this or remember me as you practice it. And so that's why it's called the Memorial Feast. Eucharist is actually my favorite because Eucharist comes from two different words. It's the Greek word for grace, and it's the Greek word for thanks. And so when we say Eucharist, we're talking about thankful for the grace of God. And so that's what the Lord's Supper then would represent. Communion, this is a reference uh, the Catholic Church, some of our Lutheran brothers and sisters as well, refer to this as communion because we're talking about community. The root word there is the root in Greek that means community. And so you're coming together in community as God's people in the presence of God when you're carrying out the Lord's Supper. The love feast, actually, that's very explanatory. Jesus died on the cross. Uh, in fact, John says this, there's no greater form of love than when a brother lays down his life for a brother. And so when Jesus laid down his life for those who will become his followers, his sin debt covering the sin of the world, that's why we have the love feast. And mass is just, again, a religious term that we apply. Now, here's the deal. In Southern Baptist churches, we call this the Lord's Supper, yet it's anything but a supper that was the Lord. Y'all do understand that. We're going to talk about history in just a minute. So regardless of the terminology that we use, there's a couple of things I need you to make you aware of, especially if you're a visitor here today. Uh, We practice what we call open communion. I think I've got this up there, Roger. Yes, we practice what's called open communion. Here's what that means. Uh, We welcome to participate in this act of worship any born-again Christ follower who has entered into relationship with Christ Jesus. It does not matter that you're not a member of this church. It does not matter to us what denominational background you come from. Uh, You are invited to be a part of this. This is something that the church did, not a simple denomination did. This is a practice Jesus left for the church collective. And so we invite the church collective today to actually practice in this. I do want to clarify one thing from a theological or doctrinal standpoint. Now, we do not believe in the concept of transubstantiation or consubstantiation, meaning this. uh, When you come up and partake of the elements in a moment, we, we really don't believe that the juice in these cups turns into the actual blood of Jesus. 
Uh, and, and the reason we don't believe that is because the Bible uses the word hapax, H-A-P-A-X, when it refers to the sacrifice of Jesus. And let me tell you what that means. That word hapax means once and never again. So Jesus was sacrificed once, and he will never be sacrificed again. So I don't believe he's being re-sacrificed every time we come up and take part in a symbolic meal, just as I don't believe these wafers are the bread that you're going to have over here in the basket represents the actual body, not the actual body. It is symbolic for the brokenness of Jesus' body. The, the juice in the cup is symbolic for the blood of Jesus, but I do not believe that it is a means of grace to itself. I believe there is only one means of grace, and his name is Christ. And so we don't, we don't believe, again, that just by you walking up here today and you partaking of these elements, that that is some type of special, mystic, mysterious means of grace that you receive. Um, because I can tell you, I'm pretty sure Dean and Carrie or, or Grant and Sarah went and picked up the bread. It's probably no more holy than the, the white loaf in your cabinet. And so it's not holiness of this. What we're celebrating is the holiness of the sacrifice that was made for us. That is what we're here to celebrate today. Okay, so we got all that stuff out of the way. That's the administrative stuff because I wanted to, to issue a true invitation. But what I always want to do is make sure that we truly have an understanding of what it is we are about to do, including the warning, which we'll get to in just a moment. In case you don't know, this is the only act of religiosity that we find in Scripture that has a warning attached to it. And we'll get to the warning in just a minute. But let me give you a little bit of background. Remember, context is everything. So for you to understand what we're about to do and understand that it's really not the Lord's Supper, it wasn't the meal of Jesus, what you need to come to understand is that the meal that Jesus was participating in was actually the Passover feast, the Passover meal. Most of you know this history very well. I'm just going to be boring you with the details. But for some of us, I love history and I'd love to go back and remind myself of what was actually taking place. Here's what we know from documents outside of Scripture. Uh, there are records that indicate by those Christ followers during those days that where they gathered was in the upper room of what we call John Mark's house. Y'all know the name of John Mark. Here's a guy who ended up going on some missionary journeys with Paul. That story didn't turn out so great. But obviously, he was a devoted follower of Jesus. And they had an upper room in their house, which was very private. And obviously large enough wherein all of these apostles and Jesus could be gathered as they celebrated again, not the Lord's Supper, but what we would refer to as the Passover meal. This would have been late spring as they gathered in this upper room, and there were different elements that they would have had at this meal as well. And I've given you this slide as well to show you some of the things that would have been there. Uh, you would have had unleavened bread that is over on the top left corner that is referred to as matzah. Matzah. Remember what leaven represented? Leaven was symbolic of sin, and if you use any leaven at all, if you have any sin in your life, that is enough to separate you from God. You do understand, Jesus would have had to die on the cross if you had one sin. So if all of humanity would have been sinless, yet there was one human who had sin in their life, Jesus would have still had to die. Because all it takes is one sin to interrupt our relationship with Christ Jesus. It doesn't end our relationship with Christ Jesus. It doesn't cause me to lose my salvation. I don't need to go back through that process again, but what it does do is it interferes with my communion with Jesus, with my obedience with Him. And, and so they would take this bread, and, and it's about the consistency. In fact, if you come up and choose not from the basket but from the tray, you're going to get the consistency of this. It's about like cardboard and not much softer. Uh, that is the consistency. Those of you who've been Christ followers a long time and done the Lord's Supper many times, you probably still have a wafer or two tucked away somewhere in there, saving it for later, right? 
So, so that's about the consistency of matzah. But again, it was the reminder of any form of sin would have caused this sacrificial death. And, and so as they would eat of that, that's what they were to be reminded of was, I am to be sinless. I am to strive to be sinless. Here's the thing. As Christ followers, will we ever be sinless this side of eternity? No, that's why Jesus had to die. That's why you have the reminder of sin is the bad thing. Sin is the cause of this. Secondly, they would have what we would call lamb shank. If, if you're not familiar with that, uh, this is just shank of lamb. This would have been uh, the young, the most tender portion. And if you've never had lamb, I've had the privilege of having lamb. And yes, I am a carnivore. I'll just go ahead and share that with you. I thought it was great. Uh, but here's the deal. I didn't have it how they would have had it. Because here, here's what they would have done. They would have taken this lamb shank and it would have been cooked in this root that you see on the bottom left. That's what we call horseradish. And it was to be cooked with a large amount of horseradish to make the meat very bitter. And remember why the meat was supposed to be bitter? Because this was a sacrificial lamb. This wasn't meant for enjoyment. This was to remind us of the death of the sacrificial lamb. Why? Because of the sin in the matzah. We are to strive for sinlessness, but because we can't attain it, there is sin in us, and thus the lamb's death was required so me and you don't have to die spiritually. And so these are the elements Jesus and his men would have actually been partaking of. So again, remember, this is a Passover meal. So, so to remind you what the Passover was like, I've given you this next slide. This is just a, a quick summation Y'all remember, and, and this is one of my favorite stories. Y'all remember the Charlton Heston movie that showed the, the Exodus? Y'all remember that one? I can still hear the voice of Charlton Heston. Uh, I, I'm telling you, I used, when I was a little kid, I thought that was like the voice of God. It was like, <laughs> I mean, he just had that voice, right? All right, so, so getting you on track with why Jesus and his men would have been eating lamb shank and it would have been bitter, you've got to go all the way back to the cause of the story. And that is the story of the Exodus where you've got Joseph who's been blessed and he's the number two guy behind Pharaoh, but the Bible tells us that after Joseph and after he had died and most of his relatives had died, again, the ones that would have been known, the Hebrew people, Joseph's people, continued to multiply. But here was the only problem. The Hebrew people, because Joseph had been forgotten, were no longer receiving favor from the Pharaohs. In fact, they had become enslaved and it was about 400 years of enslavement. We're not talking about a couple of years. There was a long period of time in which the Hebrew people had been mistreated. And so God raises up this leader. Y'all remember the story of Moses, right? God raises up this leader, and he's not a perfect leader. In fact, he actually murdered a guy. So this lets you know that God uses flawed people just like us all the time, just, just like he did Isaiah and just like he's done others. And so he raises up this leader, Moses. Moses kills this guy because he can't stand the way the Hebrew people are being treated. He's come to realize he is a Hebrew himself. So he goes out in the wilderness and he's just going to hide, right? Right up until he walks into what? Yeah, the burning bush. And God says, no, take off your shoes, boy. This is different ground now. And I'm giving you an assignment that's unlike any other assignment you've ever even heard about. You're going to go back and tell them that I sent you. And he says, well, who do I tell them sent me? He said, tell them I am. Y- y'all do understand that literally is the phrase for reality. Reality sent you. This is what God said to Pharaoh. Reality just showed up at your door. Here's the reality. You think you're God, the real one just arrived. And so Moses goes back, and y'all know how the story goes. There's nine different plagues. The Bible says that Pharaoh, would, he would have the plague happen, and he would go, oh, Moses, come back. You can go. And then just before the, the, 
the building of the pyramids would cease. No, 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 you can't go. I've got to have you. Just keep working. And then another plague. Oh, no, no, Moses, y'all can go. Oh, no, 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 you can't go. And, and this goes back and forth. And the Bible says this about Pharaoh, just to understand how salvation and how God deals with people. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then what did it say after that? It then said God hardened his heart, meaning this. Man cannot be saved when man chooses. Man has windows and opportunities provided by God. If man rejects, it is God who controls the window, and sometimes he shuts it. And so in this case with Pharaoh, God shut the window, said there'll be no more opportunities, but the plagues are going to keep coming. And it makes it all the way down to what we would call this tenth plague. And I've put it over on the right, and there is no way to depict the angel of death. I thought sight and sound did a great job of it. Uh, but there's no really... There's no way to, to depict the angel of death. But remember what that plague encompassed? All of the firstborn in the land were to perish. Now notice what I just said. All. The, the Greek word there is pas. That is the translation of the Old Testament in the Septuagint. It says pas. Do you know what all means? It means all. So that also meant Hebrew firstborn children. All firstborn in the land are going to die. And then God told Moses, here's what I want you to tell the people. Remember, this is a million plus people at this point. So you've got to somehow get this information out. You tell the people this, here, here's your safety plan. Here's your rescue. Here's how all of the firstborn don't die, but only the firstborn of those who don't belong to us, the covenant community. And so here's what he told him. He said, I want every head of household, and this is what's represented at the top of the screen, I want every head of household to take the lamb that is most unblemished, because here's what God was trying to communicate from the very beginning. Remember, Levitical law hasn't started yet, so we haven't started a sacrificial system like we studied all through the book of Leviticus. And so here's the deal. I want you to take the most beautiful, most unblemished lamb that you have. And I don't want the leftovers. I don't want the crippled one. I don't want the diseased one. You take the very best. This is going to cost you something. A church, understand this. What God is communicating here is that the sacrificial lamb, the atonement sacrifice, costs something. Because what did it cost God? It cost God Jesus. It cost him everything. And so immediately he's trying to help his people understand these sacrifices, sin is a serious deal. This is to cost you something. So take the most unblemished lamb, and here's what I want you to do, Dad, head of household. I want you to gather your entire family. And, and Dad, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be the representative of your entire home. Guess what? In the New Testament, we don't have to call the lamb anymore because Jesus was the lamb, but dads, you are the representative of your home. And God would be calling you to do the same thing. Get your family together, and you're going to gather them up around you, and Dad, you're going to take your hand, and you're going to place your hand on the head of this lamb. And what this symbolically represents, as your family prays for forgiveness, this symbolically represents, I am transferring the guilt, the sin guilt of your transgressions to the account of the lamb. Now, let me ask you something. Was the lamb guilty at all? No. Had the lamb sinned? None. But here's what I'm willing to do because I am your God and I've chosen you as my people. I'm going to allow you, Dad, to kneel down in front of your family as they confess their sins. I'm going to transfer their sin guilt to this lamb who's done nothing wrong. But we're not going to release that lamb like they later do. Remember the scapegoat that we would release in the book of Leviticus? No, we're not going to do this. Here's what we're going to do. Dad, you're going to take a knife. The knife that they use... It had a specific usage. It had a hooked bill at the very top, and that was for actually slicing, not trying to get too graphic, but slicing vessels in the neck. 
And, and so here's what you're going to do. With everybody gathered around, Dad, you're going to keep your hand on the lamp, confessing your own sin as you slay this helpless lamb. And as it's bleeding and gasping and taking its last breath, we're not going to stop there, Dad. I want you to get a bowl, and I want you to collect the blood of this helpless, sinless, spotless lamb and collect it. And here's what we're going to do. Dad, I want you to take that collected blood, and I want you to take a hyssop branch. Y'all remember hyssop? This is what David talked about in the Psalms. It was used because it was sponge-like. It was used for cleansing. And so notice what's being cleansed here is the penalty and the guilt of sin. So I want you to take that hyssop branch, and I want you to dip it in this sacrificial atoning lamb's blood, and I want you to go to the doorpost of your house. This represents your whole family. This represents the entry of your heart and your submission to me. And I want you to paint that atoning sacrificial blood all over the doorpost. How ironic that atoning sacrificial blood had to be painted on some wood in the future, correct? And we call that wood the cross. We just got through singing about it. How amazing God repeated this exact same process later with the one that we call Jesus. And so, Dad, I want you to paint it over that door, and here's what's going to happen. This death angel is coming, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. You know what the writer of Hebrews says about us? It is appointed unto all men once to die. You do understand there's nothing you can do to stop that train that's coming. Once it's appointed, it's coming. The number of your days are numbered. And God says, I know them just like the hairs on your head. I know every one of your days It's predetermined. And so you place that blood, and this angel comes into Egypt. This angel literally is going to go door by door by door by door. And when it comes to a house where the blood is painted over the doorpost, this atoning sacrificial blood of this sinless, spotless lamb, when the death angel gets to that door, what does the death angel do? Instead of entering, it passes over that door. And thus, where do we come up with the name Passover? From the tenth plague, that of the spiritual death angel that would come and then pass over. So here's what the family did in case you don't remember the story. They didn't just slay the lamb, they then processed the lamb. And as they took that lamb meat inside, mom would start to prepare that meat. Dad would participate because, again, he's leading his house to worship in this way. And they would take that lamb meat. And many times before, they had eaten lamb, and it was sweet to them. It was a way of sustaining their bodies. And they would take that lamb meat, and they cooked it in this bitter herb. And and what outside sources teach us is that it would have been what we would call horseradish, but very raw, very strong. And so as they would eat that, as they would partake of that horseradish, every bite that they would taste, every bite that they would taste, the bitterness was to remind them that the only reason they were able to live, the only reason they were allowed to go free, was because a sinless, spotless lamb had died in their place. If you were going to do a modern-day Passover meal, uh, this is what it would look like. It's called Seder. Seder is a word for peace. And so Seder plate. And if you look at it, there's a couple of things that that if we were to set that up traditionally, there's different things you could find. Right in the center, notice right in the middle. What what do we always put in the centerpiece? The thing that we want to be seen the most? What is put in the centerpiece of a Seder plate? The lamb shank. Why? Because without the lamb sacrifice, none of this means anything. Without the lamb sacrifice, there is no peace. 
There is no salvation. And so we would put the lamb shank in the middle. If you start at the top, that is where you find the horseradish. And believe it or not, instead of like in the American culture where we go around this way, you actually go this way. And so you would take a bite of the lamb, you would take a bite of the horseradish or, or the bitter root, and you would come down, and, and there are, there's some parsley or new green leaves, and you get two different versions. It doesn't matter. You can kind of pick parsley typically as one of those. And you will take that parsley or the, the other green leafy substance, and you will dip that in salt water. And here's what the salt water is to remind you as you bite it, is the tears that this sacrificial lamb is going to cost. And, and y'all know as well as I do, people probably didn't cry over the lambs. But what this is reminding us of is that the true sacrificial lamb, which the writer of Hebrews says is Jesus, because he died once for all, was the tears that were shed over the death of Christ in heaven. And so we're to be reminded that the death of this lamb is not only bitter, that there's emotion attached to the death of the lamb. And as you come on around, the, the paste-looking substance that you see, believe it or not, that cinnamon apples, it's really ground up, it's really cool stuff. The, the reason you partake of that is to remind you of the mortar that was used in the bricks being laid on the pyramid. The slavery that this death and these tears have removed from us. And then it closes out with this, if you've ever wondered what the boiled egg is for, is to remind us of the sacrifice. Is to remind us of the sacrifice. You know the Jews to this day, there is no temple, so there's no sacrificial system. And so they will boil an egg, and they will boil it to the point that it's almost burnt on the outside to remind them of the burnt sacrifice that has to be a part of their life, this sacrifice of praise, our sacrifice of confession in order for there to be life. This is the modern day act of the Passover feast. Again, we don't do it this way, and here's why we don't, because Jewish heritage is not what we practice in Protestant churches, yet we do a symbolic remembrance of that and this is the same thing that we get from Paul and from Matthew both later we get a picture of what they did as a practice of this however I shared this with you because before we move forward there is something we need to discuss because to me this is the most important and solemn part of of what we're about to do the apostle Paul as he was laying out instructions for how to do this he also gave what we call the warning And this warning is something I want to share with you from Scripture and then give you a chance to do exactly what he said to do. Because remember, when we gather to do this this morning, it's not simply an act of worship. It is an act of remembrance. And Paul says this is so serious to God because it was his tears that were shed as his son was sacrificed. It is so serious to him. We want you to do it very carefully. And if you're not prepared spiritually, don't participate. So let me share with you this text. For those of you who take notes, you know this text well. 1 Corinthians 11, this is verses 27 through 32. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. So here, here's what I want us to do in the next couple of minutes. We're not going to take a long time for this. But I want to give you a chance to make sure spiritually you're not about to participate in this in an unworthy fashion. So what does that mean, Justin? Tell me. Because I don't want to be unworthy. Well, 
Number one, unworthy would be if you're not a true Christ follower, you march up here and you're acting as though you are one. God will not be mocked. That's what Scripture says. And you are virtually mocking the death of Jesus if you come and participate and in your heart, which is actually your mind because this is where your thoughts are controlled. If you are absolutely certain this morning you're not a true Christ follower, then you don't need to come partake of this. This is not for those outside of the church. It is for those who are any part of the church, regardless of denomination. It is not for those outside the church. So that would be unworthy if you participate and you're not truly a Christian. Number two, it would be unworthy for you to participate if there is ongoing sin, a practice of sin in your life that you have not confessed and done your best to turn from. And there's multiple sins. We can come up with a host. The Bible lists all types of things. But here is one in particular I want to share with you because the Bible says it impacts your act of worship. And that is broken relationships. Remember what we're told in the book of Matthew? Jesus voiced this, if you've brought your sacrifice to me, if you've brought your gift to me, yet you and your brother have this issue. That doesn't mean, please hear me, it doesn't mean practically you're going to get along with every person you know, but this does mean that as it is according to you, you've tried to fix relationships. You've held people accountable for when they are a sin and you've allowed them to hold you accountable the same. And yet, if there's still a broken relationship there and you're battling bitterness, here's what Jesus says. Instead of bringing me your offering, come and just lay it on the floor. And then I want you to go and fix that relationship as it is best to your ability. If you cannot, because you can't make other people be fixed. But if you've tried your best to reconcile a relationship, then he says, come back and offer me your worship. If not, then we need to put that on hold. So, so this morning, if you've got a broken relationship, you know, guys... Before I entered vocational ministry 20 years ago, uh, there were times that, that I can remember Amanda and I even going to church that we have made, may have had disagreements. We haven't had a disagreement in 20 plus years of church world on Sunday because I leave before they start getting ready. <laughs> Out the door. <laughs> so even this morning, there may have been tension in your house. No kidding. There may have been disagreement in your house. Hey, fix that. Fix that before you come up. Check your, check your emotional attitude and your spiritual attitude before you come up. But again, that applies to any ongoing sin. Any ongoing sin, whatever that may be. I want you to deal with that before you come up because here's the promise. Get this, man, we focus on the promises of Jesus all the time in Scripture. We focus on God's promises. You did hear the final promise of that passage, right? You are drinking judgment on yourself. So here's the promise. If your heart's not right when you come up to do this, you're asking for it. I'm not trying to scare you, but my job as a pastor is to train you and teach you. That's what 411 in Ephesians tells me. And so again, we need to be prepped. So here, here's what we're going to do. Before we, before we launch into inviting you up, and, and Shad and our team are going to come up in just a moment, but before we do that, we're just going to have a moment of prayer. And this, this is your time. And, and I'm just going to back off towards the platform, and I'm just going to hang out up here for a couple of minutes, and then I'm going to voice a prayer that kind of closes that, because that, that's the team's cue to come on out and get ready, and then we're going to have our deacons come up right after that. So this is your moment, and whether you want to pray right where you are, whether you want to kneel down, whether you want to come to this altar, this is your time to make sure your heart is pure. Your attitude is that of giving thanks. Eucharist, thank you for your grace. This is that moment for you. So here's what I want you to just bow your heads. Nobody looking around. I want this to be your private moment. No matter who's beside you, 
Make this your private moment. Engage the Lord in prayer, and let's ensure that we're ready to participate in worship this morning.